Psalm 86 is a prayer for help in a time of trouble. Sadly, in our sin, we block God from an active involvement with us. And then when we find ourselves in trouble, we suddenly cry out for divine intervention, expecting God to answer us. Instead of nurturing a vital experience with God that prepares us for the trouble, we expect God to be at our beck and call when the trouble comes. How often are we only willing to submit to God's control when some catastrophe puts control out of our grasp? You see, in many ways, we embrace a God of the gaps theology. God of the gap theology teaches that God only shows up in the major events of life, but not in the day to day. God of the gap theology denies God's active control over us and pushes God to the sideline. And this type of theology allows us to lead a radically secularized life and yet feel free to cry out to God when we need Him. Well, Psalm 86 rejects a radical secularized worldview and instead embraces a radical supernatural worldview. And as David demonstrates, God is not a God of the gaps, but a God who is actively at work in the day-to-day -day life of His people. As an interesting aside, almost every line of Psalm 86 has been lifted out of other Psalms, such as Psalms 25 through 28, Psalm 40, and Psalm 54 to 57. As well, it lifts lines from the Torah, particularly Exodus 34. So as we examine Psalm 86, we're going to see in verses 1 through 7, David's prayer for mercy. In verses 8 to 13, we're going to see David's praise to God. And then finally, in verses 14 to 17, we're going to see David's plea for help. So let's begin in verses 1 through 7 and see David's prayer for mercy. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer, and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. Verse 1 opens with a cry to the God who is both transcendent and imminent. Although He stands beyond history, God is active in history. And because God is transcendent, He must bow down His ear. He must incline, lean down to listen. Because God is imminent, however, He has an ear to incline. He has an ear to listen and hear us when we pray. David asks God to condescend to him, not just because he's exalted, but rather because David says, I am afflicted and needy, literally poor and needy. And it is exactly the poor and needy for whom Yahweh has special care. 
You can cross-reference that to Isaiah 3, 13 to 15. Isaiah 3, 13 to 15. Amos 5, 11. Amos 5, 11. Psalm 72, verse 4, 12 and 13. Psalm 72, 4, 12 and 13. Moreover, David says his life is in danger. And therefore, he's calling upon God to preserve him, literally guard him in verse 2. And the basis for his request is now given. He says, because I am holy. David expresses the fact that he is separated from God, or separated from sin. He's a holy man or a godly man. He has separated himself from the world. He is bound by the covenant between him and God. And notice Yahweh is what? My God. He's his personal God. And David is his what? His servant. That word servant denotes the fact that David has submitted to God's divine lordship over his life. As God's servant, he expects him to deliver him or save him because he trusts or finds security in him for all things. He sees God actively working in his life day to day. And because he sees God working in his life day to day, he knows that when trouble comes, he can cry out to God and God will hear him and deliver him. The call for help continues in verse 3 as he cries out for mercy. David's hope lies in his persistence. He says he's crying what? All day long. This is the tenacity of David's prayer. He does not force God to be merciful. That's not why he is tenacious in his prayer. He's not trying to manipulate God. He's simply showing God that he indeed does trust him and need him. And I ask, are our prayers that tenacious? Or are we simply just, God, hi, I need you. Hey, God, I need help with this. Or, hey, God, I need help with that. No, rather, we have to continually, habitually bring our prayers to God and show God the tenacity of our request, that we're willing to keep coming to Him day after day to show Him our need and our trust. Again, we're not forcing God to be merciful. We're demonstrating that we need Him. David, or next, David asks God, Rejoice the soul of your servant in verse 4. You know, he's, literally he's saying, Lord, as you hear my prayer, guard my life, save me, and show mercy upon me, and I will worship you. Literally, I will, my soul will rejoice, or my soul will be glad. He'll lift up his entire being to the Lord with the expectation of gladness that will come. Notice in verse 5, David comes to God who is good or kind. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. God's goodness and His grace, His kindness and His mercy are closely connected. Psalm 100, verse 5, the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. After confessing that God is good, David immediately thinks of his readiness to forgive or pardon with abundant mercy. That's literally that covenant love for all who call upon him. 
See, David said back in verse 2 that he was bound in the covenant. He was godly. And that covenant is with God and God with man, as we see in verse 5. That frames the, the reality for David's life. He's in a covenant relationship with God day to day. So after rehearsing who God is and who David is in verses 1 through 5, David now refers or re returns rather to direct address in verse 6. Again, give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. His prayer is oral. Notice he says, attend to the voice. He's literally praying out loud. He's not just praying in his head, he's praying out loud. Again, that doesn't mean that if you're just praying in your head or in your thoughts that God doesn't hear you. But David is expressing it, he's vocalizing it, he's praying it out loud. Crying out to God with supplications or requests for favor. These supplications include both prayers for David's discipleship in verse 11, as we'll see, as well as deliverance from his enemies in verses 16 and 17. And the urgency of this prayer is expressed by the phrase, in the day of my trouble, my distress, in verse 7. So David prays day by day, but David prays particularly in the day of trouble. But he knows because God is with him in the day today that God will answer in the day of trouble. You see, what we see in these verses is there's no absent God of the gaps. Rather, we see the covenant God bound to David and David to God. God is ready to give ear to David's prayers. God is ready to shower him with abundant mercy whenever he calls. And in the day of trouble, there will be an answer, as we see in verse 7. And when we find ourselves in the same covenant relationship, we can expect the same answer. God is God yesterday, today, and forever. Verses 8 to 13, David's praise to God. David's praise to God. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and will glorify your name forever. For your loving kindness towards me is great, and you shall have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Having called upon God to act on his behalf, David makes his own great confession or praise to the Lord. And the key to this passage lies in verse 10, where he says, God is great and does wondrous deeds or things, literally extraordinary acts. Not only is God's covenant heart committed to David, but David knows him as the mighty God who pours out his judgments upon his enemies and leads his people in triumph. And thus David knows not only the presence of the Lord, but he knows the power of the Lord. He says, there is no God like God. You, O Lord. Now here he uses Lord Adonai. He says, Adonai, Master, the idols shrink before you because you are great and unique. You've created the nations. And someday all the nations will come and bow down or worship this God. 
All nations will one day glorify and praise his name. You can cross-reference that to Psalm 95, verse 6. Psalm 95, verse 6. And Isaiah 2, 2-4. Again, Isaiah 2, 2-4. You see, David's assurance for this final eschatological triumph is the present action of God. He is great. He does wondrous things. He just doesn't do wondrous things in times of trouble. He does wondrous things day by day. And therefore, David says, you are alone, our God. Notice the specialness of Yahweh is seen in what he does, not just in what he says. He creates the nations. He performs great acts. Why? Because he's great. What he does reflects who he is. And it's for that very reason Jesus came to bear the word of the Father and to do the work of the Father in John 14, 10, and 11. John 14, 10, and 11. To separate the word from the work is to do a disservice to who God is. The living God speaks and acts and expects us not only to hear His word, but do His word. Just as He speaks and acts, so He expects us to hear and obey. David now asks God to instruct him so that he can obey Him in verse 11 and worship Him in verse 12. And the basis for this has been the God's intervention in his life, verse 13. Because of what God has done in his life in the day today, he says, I want to obey you and I want to worship you. You see, God redeems us in order to disciple us. The way of God, verse 11, is the path that God wants us to take. That embraces all of life. David says, I'm going to walk in God's truth, literally his trustworthiness. You see, instruction in God's Word is not merely for information. Instruction in God's Word is to know God, and by knowing God, we would desire to obey God. So what are you doing? What are you doing when you hear God's Word? What are you doing when you learn about God? Is it just head knowledge? Is it just filling time? Or is it challenging you to submit to Him and obey Him? And let me be clear that obedience to God is not a grim reality. As David asked God, unite my heart, make single my divided heart. You see, right now your heart is divided. But remember what Jesus said, we can't serve two masters. But that's the problem with our heart. Our heart is divided. On one hand, as Paul said, the things that I should do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I'm doing. We're fighting that battle between our flesh and the Spirit of God. And so David prays, God, make single my heart so I can be in awe, literally fear your name, that is, your presence. And when God unites our hearts, and listen, He's only going to unite your heart to the degree that you study His Word. You will obey Him, and that will be the joy of your life. And that all that fear will evoke worship praise with all your heart all of your faculties you're going to glorify God's name his presence and his character is revealed in his acts forevermore and my friends God is eternal and he expects to be eternally praised now why is there such an explosion of worship here well look at verse 13 because of God's great mercy his covenant love this mercy is revealed to David as 
David's soul, his literal self, is delivered or snatched from the depths of Sheol. Sheol is the dwelling place of the dead in the lowest parts of the earth. It's the place we call hell, the place of separation and torment from God, where, we, where, where individuals will await the great white throne before they're cast forever into the lake of fire. See, we have something to praise God for. We have a reason to worship God. First and foremost, He has delivered us from hell. He has saved us and pulled us back. Now let's look at David's plea for help in verses 14 to 17. O God, arrogant men have risen up against me. A band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant. Save the son of your handmaid. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Having called upon God for his mercy in verses 1 through 7, having praised God for his faith in verses 8 to 10, having submitted himself to God in verses 11 to 13, David is now ready to get very specific about his crisis. He is facing an insurrection. The proud have revolted, literally risen against him. They are a mob of violent men, literally uh, the Hebrew word there is terror striking, who are seeking to kill him. They do not worship God. They have not set God before them. And therefore, they're attacking David. Encountering this revolt, what does David do? He doesn't turn to his armies. He doesn't turn to his wit. He doesn't turn to his knowledge. He doesn't turn to his friends. Instead, he turns to the Lord. But you are full of compassion. You, my God, are merciful and gracious. You're long-suffering. You're slow of anger. You're full of mercy or covenant love. You're truth or trustworthy. You see, when chaos sets in, it is only God who is certain and consistent, and that's who David rests in. How about you? Are you resting in that God in times of crisis? Do you turn to the Lord in times of revolt and rebellion? Is God full of compassion? To you? Is he merciful? Is he gracious? Is he long suffering? Is he slow to anger? Is he full of mercy or covenant love? Is he truth or trustworthy to you? So when chaos sets in, who do you turn for certainty and consistency? With his enemies attacking, his confidence in God secure, David calls for divine intervention. Oh, turn to me. God, turn your face towards me in grace and have mercy upon me. And then he says, God, give me what alone you have, your strength. That's what David needed. He didn't rely on his strength or the strength of his friends or the strengths of anybody. He relied only on God's strength. And that's exactly, friends, what Jesus did at Pentecost. You see, Calvary snatched us out of hell, but Pentecost gave us his strength for ministry because after grace comes power. The strength to fight will mean salvation and deliverance. God's mercy, God's strength, God's salvation is accomplished by a sign, an omen, a miracle for good. In verse 17. David's enemies will see God's intervention and be ashamed. And that, my friends, is what will exactly happen for you and me. Those who stand against us, those who oppose us as God's enemies, will see God's intervention and will be confounded or ashamed. They will know that God has helped us and delivered us 
and comforted us with his presence. See, my friends, we do not have a God of the gaps. We have a living God who is actively involved in the day-to-day. He is the God who created all things, verses 8 to 9. He's true to his covenant, verse 5. He hears our prayers, verse 1 and 6. Performs mighty miracles, verse 10 and 17. Instructs us in his way, verse 11. And binds us in his mercy, verse 3, 13, 15, and 16. And therefore, he is to be the object of our praise and worship in verse 12. Life is not to be lived in hope of God's occasional intervention. Life is to be lived day by day in the presence of God. And my friends, that truth will drive out unbelief from your heart. That truth will drive secularization from your heart and will drive you to denounce the God of the gaps as an idol created by the modern mind. Praise God, we have a God who is actively involved in the day-to-day. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth. That, Lord, you're just not a God who shows up when it's convenient. You're not a God who just shows up when there's trouble. You're a God who's with us in the day-to-day. And I pray, God, that we would uh, surrender to you. Uh, to, to that fact that you are our Lord, you're our master, and that, Father, you would purge us from this God of the gap theology, that, Lord, we might reject the radical seculation that the uh, church, that Christianity in this country has embraced, and that, Father, in rejecting it, you would give us a radical spiritual worldview, one that sees you actively at work in the day-to-day. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.